My beloved brothers and sisters, the gospel is true, and we rejoice in that knowledge. What a lovely, sweet spirit we have had at this conference, and how wonderful and true all the messages have been. May I, first of all, bring each of you love from the people of the South Pacific. And when you bring love from that area, you have to carry a couple of extra bags. I bring you that love, and I want you to know that these people are filled with love and faith. We meet as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him, and we want to help him in doing that which has to be done. And Heavenly Father loves his children, those who live now, those yet unborn, and those who have lived and died. We can be a part of that process through our commitment. The fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, verses 4 and 5, states, <clears throat> When thou vowest a vow unto God, <clears throat> defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Every member of this Church takes upon himself a sacred vow as he submits himself to the waters of baptism. One day in seven, each Sabbath day, we assemble to renew that sacred vow and commitment as we partake of the sacrament. I would like to suggest that, as Church members, we keep four prime objectives uppermost in our mind. All four of these objectives involve people, for His Church is a people-oriented Church. Just as people were the main concern of the Savior, so it should be with each of us if we are to assist the Master in achieving His end result to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Eternal life for the individual requires priesthood. It requires priesthood action. It requires conformity to priesthood principles. The four people-oriented objectives in the life of those who profess to call themselves members of His Church are these. First, the obligation to prepare oneself and one's immediate family for the presence of the Lord. Second, the obligation to be our brother's keeper and to lift other Church members. Third, the obligation to share the most precious gift we have, the gospel, with those who have not yet caught the vision. And fourth, the obligation to provide an opportunity of eternal blessings for our kindred dead. Please note that your own personal welfare was first on the list, because the last three great obligations can only be accomplished from a source of strength and confidence. The world has too many cases already of the blind leading the blind. Our source of knowledge is light and truth. It is the word of God in the beautiful framework of continuing revelation. Truth and light must indeed be received before there can be a dissemination of it. The Savior provided living water to the spiritually deprived. We should strive for that capability also. Ours is not the role of the book vendor who merely carries out an exchange. As we convey properly, we must give of ourselves. Truth travels best on the wings of personal testimony and individual worthiness. The Lord said to Peter, 
When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And just as important is the response given the Lord by Peter on that occasion when he vowed, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. God's work and glory starts with our preparedness. He counsels, let every man learn his duty. It requires dedication, seek ye first the kingdom of God. It demands conformity, the singular way, come, follow me. Only after true conversion, exemplified by a demonstrated willingness to improve our lives, can we be counted on as one standing on solid ground, as one ready to respond to the call, as one prepared to lift others. Our second obligation is to be our brother's keeper, to be our sister's keeper, to seek after the lost sheep, to teach one another the doctrines of the kingdom. I bear testimony to you that home teaching is the divinely inspired method by which we can best touch lives within this Church. Right beside this tremendous priesthood process is Relief Society visiting teaching. Paul had the spirit of home teaching and visiting teaching when he wrote to Timothy, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. And now listen to this directly from the Lord. And I give unto you a commandment that you shall teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. This is not a mere suggestion, but listen. I give unto you a commandment that you shall teach one another. I like the analogy I once heard about home teaching. As the speaker held up a piece of Scottish plaid, and suggested that in our minds we think of each color in the plaid as a separate program of the Church. Then he asked the question, which color is home teaching? The answer, home teaching is not a single color. It is the total fabric. Home teaching, properly carried out, could well involve every facet of the Church according to the varying needs of each family. I like that. Too often we think of home teaching as just another program. It can and should be as long and as broad as the entire Church spectrum. Now, All four billion souls now living on the earth are very dear indeed to our Heavenly Father. They also need what you and I have. To see that they have an opportunity to hear and hopefully accept is another of our important responsibilities. Thus we help Heavenly Father to further accomplish His work and His glory to assist in bringing all of his children into the circle. So the third great objective and vow that we have taken upon ourselves involves these four billion souls. It means continually seeking out and teaching those who might be ready now. This teaching is best done in an appropriate, orderly, and sincere way that will lead to their unqualified acceptance of gospel truths. The Savior said, Go ye into all the world, and we are going, some 23,000 strong. We are now carrying the truth of the gospel to some 50 nations. But even today's effort is not enough, says the prophet. Every single person in the Church, 25 years and younger, should be considered as a prospective missionary, and the rest of us should become involved in training them, in encouraging them, and in helping them to save funds that they may be self-financed as far as possible. Now, During the recent tour of area conferences in the South Pacific, 
President Kimball was obviously impressed, as we met dozens of Indian converts in Fiji. He recognized these pioneers of their race as the possibility for a future thrust into the masses of India when the time is right. The first hour of our Sunday morning session in Sydney was carried live on national television into tens of thousands of homes across Australia. The talks were superb. The choir sang beyond their natural abilities. It was a miracle that we were meeting in the Sydney Opera House, a dramatic story in itself. Just in a word, the Sydney Opera House is normally booked two to three years in advance. Uh, there's an impressive history of practically no cancellations. And less than two months prior to conference time, there was a cancellation that no one can really explain. No one except the Lord, that is. You see, it just happened to be on our weekend. The Lord moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And the possibility of a national telecast was largely uh, made possible by the acquisition of the Opera House as the conference location. Listen to a few non-member, typical non-member responses sent in from all over Australia after viewing that telecast. The first, well, how real can you get? It was simple and kind towards the family tie of love between one another, even a little old-fashioned. There was a spiritual understanding for me. Another person said, Even though I'm not a Mormon, I found a deep sense of wisdom in this program. And still another, I learned more about your church from the address of your president than any literature could convey. I enjoyed the choir and the messages. Great work. Listen to this one. What an inspiring message I heard this morning. I was only sorry I could not have watched right through, but I had to hurry to my own church. <laughs> <laughs> and then another person wrote, I would be interested in any literature you may care to send, but no callers yet. <laughs> and still another, my heart is filled with the love of God and fellow men after viewing your inspirational telecast. And finally this one, if one could imagine heaven, then these wonderful people have given me a glimpse. I realize now I am desperate for salvation. Here truly must be the answer. Help. Help. The world is crying for help. Isn't it thrilling to be a part of this significant surge forward? There must be rejoicing in the heavens as well. You and I have a commitment to be missionaries, and if that message isn't clear, you haven't been listening. The largest segment of Heavenly Father's family who need our help is our kindred dead. To suppose that we as baptized members of the Church can turn away from our forebears is the surest way I know of becoming ineligible for the ultimate blessings we all seek so earnestly. The Prophet Joseph Smith recorded this in the 128th section of the Doctrine and Covenants as he wrote to the Church members in 1842 under the spirit and direction of the Lord. And now, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation. For their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation, as Paul says concerning the fathers, that they without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. 
We seek exaltation to achieve, and to achieve that means perfection. And the direction is clear. We cannot be made perfect without our dead. We must seek them out. We must do for them that which they cannot do for themselves. Many of us are coasting along under the false illusion that now the computer and the microfilm will do it all for us. Though these modern methods are essential and helpful, no machine will ever be able to provide salvation for any man unless that man does what he must do himself. There are no shortcuts to exaltation. Brothers and sisters, save our dead. We must. Such is our commitment. Carry the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. We must. Such is our commitment. Be our brother's keeper and teach one another. We must. Such is our commitment. Learn our individual duty well and teach our family as we overcome petty weaknesses. We must. For such is our commitment. Yes, it all starts right here with you and me and the commitment or the vow that we have made with our Heavenly Father. For he said, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. And this is my hope and my prayer for all of us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, I reveal unto you concerning this heaven and this earth. Write the words which I speak. I am the beginning and the end, the Almighty God. By mine only begotten, I created these things. Yea, in the beginning I created the heaven and the earth upon which thou standest. As I study the scriptures, I marvel at the preparation the Lord made for the creation of our earthly home. I'm impressed with the system and order he uses in his creative process. I stand in awe at his work. Could I quickly review that creation process with you? First, the Lord surveyed the conditions he had to work with in the creation of our earthly abode. Certainly, they were not encouraging. He found the earth without form and void and darkness on the face of the deep. His first requirement in the creative process was to let there be light an essential ingredient for building. With light to guide his workmanship, it was possible to separate the heavens from the earth. Now the earthly home was established, and he was in position to build in a supply system for mankind. Working with the earth, he separated the land from the waters and vegetated the land with grasses, herbs, and fruits, each with a built-in system of reproducing themselves in their own kind. In order for the growth process to continue, it was necessary to tilt the earth on an axis 
and started in a, a rotation to give it periods of darkness for rest and periods of sunshine for growth. As an additional benefit of this rotation, it provided a timekeeping system for mankind to record days and seasons and years. Now that the Lord's plant life system was in operation, he inspected his workmanship and found that it was good. This allowed him to turn his attention towards the creation of animal life. First the lower forms, the fowls which fly in the air, and the fishes of the sea. This was followed by the cattle and the beasts of the earth, and all other things which creepeth upon the earth, each with their ability to reproduce themselves in their own kind. The creation of the world was complete. There was a place for man to live, the waters, the dry land, the night, the day, the plant and animal life, all created for the benefit of mankind. The supply system had been complete. All that man would ever need from the beginning to the end, if he was industrious, would be supplied him. Once again, there was an inspection of that which was created, and it was found to be very good. Now all was in readiness for the creation of man and woman. With all of the preparations which had been established in the building of their earthly home, they were now able to sustain and support themselves with those needed things for life, because all that they would ever need had been supplied them, it was now possible to hold them accountable for their mortal performance. The scriptures record that the Lord then charged mankind with his responsibility. And I, God, blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The operation of the Lord's physical creation was clearly predictable. His physical laws were eternal and unchangeable. As man grows in his understanding of God's physical laws, he can know with absolute assurance what the result will be if he conforms to those laws. Now, after the physical creation had been completed, the Lord responded to the petitions of mankind and blessed him with the knowledge of how he should govern himself in his mortal probation. The consistency of the Lord's physical laws is analogous to the consistency inherent in the commandments which he gave to mankind. Through these commandments, Man was expected to govern his conduct while he was here on earth. The rewards for compliance were clearly predictable. The punishment for disregarding 
his divine decrees were sure and absolute. And the Lord declared these words to mankind, For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receives not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. And again, verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law also is preserved by law. That which breaketh a law and abideth not by law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself, and willeth to abide in sin, and altogether abideth in sin, cannot be sanctified by law, neither by mercy, justice, nor judgment. Therefore, they must remain filthy still. In a commentary, it has been written about these particular verses as follows. Every law God has given us is of such a nature that by keeping it, we are preserved, protected, and sanctified. If we keep the word of wisdom, our bodies will be kept pure. If we observe the law of tithing, we shall learn to become unselfish and honest. If we pray, we shall have holy communion with the Holy Spirit. If we try to do our duty in everything, we shall day by day come nearer to perfection. On the other hand, those who refuse to be governed by law and are a law unto themselves cannot be sanctified. They are outside the pale of mercy and justice and judgment as well as law and must remain filthy still. It is only when we try to obey the Lord's God's laws, that we have claim on his mercy. Justice will take into account in the judgment every honest effort to do the will of God. Thus the Lord, in his wisdom and great affection for us, did establish a foundation which is firm, unchangeable, and can be relied upon with which we can build our lives with positive assurance that the results will be contingent upon our worthiness. The early founders of America clearly understood the need for law to not be in conflict with divine law. It was Alexander Hamilton who said, No human laws are of any validity if contrary to God's laws, and such of them as are valid derive all of their authority, immediately or immediately, from this original. John Adams understood the potential of righteous government when he wrote, Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible as their only law book, and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited.
Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance and frugality and industry, to justice and kindness and charity towards his fellow man, to piety, love, and repentance, and reverence towards Almighty God. In this commonwealth, no man would impair his health with gluttony, drunkenness, or lust. No man would sacrifice his precious time to cards or any other trifling or mean amusement. No man would steal or lie or in any way defraud his neighbor, but would live in peace and goodwill towards all men. No man would blaspheme his Maker or profane his worship, but a rational and manly, a sincere and unaffected piety and devotion would reign in all hearts. What a utopia, what a paradise that region would be. End of quote. From the beginning with the creation of the world, we have found order in the Lord's plan. Thousands of years of history have testified to us of a consistency in His government as He directs the affairs of mankind. Just as sure as John Adams, we know the results of temperance, frugality, and industry. When they are discovered in the actions of mankind, wealth, prosperity, and abundance are the sure rewards for his efforts. Justice, kindness, and charity always produce peace, love, and harmony. The results of gluttony, drunkenness, and lust are clearly predictable. They will surely destroy the temporal body. We also know the effects of a weakened physical body on the functions of a mind. The destruction of one clearly has the same effect on the other. The results of stealing, lying, and defrauding are also absolute. We know the waste that is the result of these activities as they literally rob us of our inheritance. I was riding in an airplane a few days ago, and seated across the aisle from me was a noted educator. In the course of our conversation, he recounted to me a teaching experience he had just heard about. In giving an examination one day, a trigonometry teacher said, Today I'm going to give two examinations, one in trigonometry and one in honesty. I hope you'll pass them both. But if you must fail one, let it be trigonometry. For there are many good men in the world today who cannot pass an examination in trigonometry, but there are no good men in the world today who cannot pass an examination in honesty. How we need the blessings of integrity in our society today. Every healthy society needs a common core of values based on the divine law of the Lord. This core of values should be fundamental upon which all laws govern human conduct. 
societies which have governed themselves on this fundamental set of values have found peace, prosperity, joy, beauty, morality, and fulfillment. Societies which have thought themselves beyond these basic laws have literally destroyed themselves. Are we not now seeing in our society a lack of responsiveness to teach these basic values? Are we not seeing a growing harvest of public and private crime, irresponsibility, vandalism, shoddy work, immorality, and the lack of personal discipline? Because of our unwillingness to get involved in the preservation of these values, small, radical, godless groups are literally stealing from us our right to enjoy our freedoms and the right to set our own value system. There is a law irrevocably decreed in the heavens before the foundation of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. It is when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. The Lord has clearly charted a course for us to obtain his blessings. He is bound by divine law to bless us for our righteousness. The overwhelming question in each age is why each generation must test his law when the Lord's performance from generation to generation has been absolutely consistent. Is it not time again for us to re-examine our position? Is it not time for us to build within our personal lives, our families, our communities, and our nations an anchor which is firmly situated on a foundation of divine law? Is it not time again to heed the warning of Paul? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap. May God bless us that we may sow the Spirit in order that our harvest will be life everlasting. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If the Lord will inspire me, I desire to speak on what may be regarded as a very ordinary subject. But I believe it to be of the essence of the gospel. Without the quality of character of which I speak, the fabric of our society will disintegrate into ugliness and chaos. That quality of character is personal honesty. Among various unsigned letters I have received was one of particular interest. It contained a $20 bill 
and a brief note which stated that the writer had come to my home many years ago. When there was no response to the bell, he had tried the door and, finding it unlocked, had entered and walked about. On the dresser, he saw a $20 bill, took it and left. Through the years, his conscience had bothered him, and he was now returning the money. He did not include anything for interest for the period during which he had used my money. <laughs> but as I read his pathetic letter, I thought of the usury to which he had subjected himself for a quarter of a century with the unnagging, with the ceasing, unceasing nagging of his conscience. For him, there had been no peace until he had made restitution. Our local papers carried a similar story the other day. The state of Utah received an unsigned note together with $200. The note read, quote, The enclosed is for materials used over the years I worked for the state, such as envelopes, paper, stamps, etc., unquote. Imagine the flood of money that would pour into the offices of government, business, and merchants if all who filched a little here and there were to return that which they had dishonestly taken. The cost of every bag of groceries at the supermarket, of every tire blouse bought at the shopping center, includes for each of us the burden of shoplifting. How cheaply some men and women sell their good names. I recall the widely publicized case of a prominent public figure who was arrested for taking an item costing less than $5. I do not know whether he was ever convicted in the courts, but his petty misdeed convicted him before the people. In a measure, at least, his foolish act nullified much of the good he had done and was capable of yet doing. Each time we board a plane, we pay a premium so that our persons and our baggage may be searched in the interest of security. In the aggregate, this amounts to millions of dollars, all because of the frightening dishonesty of a few who, by threat and blackmail, would try to obtain that to which they are not entitled. One of our national magazines recently featured an account of fraud running into the billions in connection with Medicaid. Implicated were some patients, hospitals, clinics, laboratories, and even doctors all after a dishonest dollar. Padded insurance claims, padded expense accounts, bogus checks, forged documents. These are all symptomatic of an epidemic of unbelievable proportions. In most instances, the amount involved individually is small, but in total it represents personal dishonesty on a huge scale. The book of Genesis contains this remarkable statement. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine. Fortunately, there are still those who observe such principles of personal rectitude. Recently, we rode a train from Osaka to Nagoya, Japan. At the station were friends to greet us, and in the excitement, my wife left her purse on the train. 
We called the Tokyo station to report it. When the train arrived at its destination some three hours later, the railroad telephoned to say the purse was there. We were not returning via Tokyo, and more than a month passed before it was delivered to us in Salt Lake City. Everything left in the purse was there when it was returned. Such experiences, I fear, are becoming increasingly rare. In our childhood, we were told the stories of George Washington's confessing to chopping down the cherry tree and Abraham Lincoln's walking a great distance to return a small coin to its rightful owner. But clever debunkers in their unrighteous zeal have destroyed faith in such honesty, while the media in all too many cases have paraded before us a veritable procession of deception in its many ugly forms. What was once controlled by the moral and ethical standards of the people we now seek to handle by public law. And so the statutes multiply. Enforcement agencies consume ever-increasing billions. Prison facilities are constantly expanded, but the torrent of dishonesty pours on and grows in volume. Of course, falsehood is not true, new. It is as old as man. The Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Asked the prophet Malachi of ancient Israel, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me even this whole nation. Even following the miracle of Pentecost, deception was manifest among some who had come into the church. Those who were converted sold their lands and brought money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? and to keep back part of the price of the land. While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. In our time, those found in dishonesty do not die as did Ananias and Sapphira, but something within them dies. Conscience chokes, character withers, self-respect vanishes, integrity perishes. 
On Mount Sinai, the finger of the Lord wrote on tablets of stone, Thou shalt not steal. There was neither enlargement nor rationalization. And then that declaration was followed by three other commandments, the violation of each of which involves dishonesty. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Was there ever adultery without dishonesty? In the vernacular, the evil is described as cheating. And cheating it is, for it robs virtue, it robs loyalty, it robs sacred promises, it robs self-respect, it robs truth. It involves deception. It is personal dishonesty of the worst kind, for it becomes a betrayal of the most sacred of human relationships and a denial of covenants and promises entered into before God and man. It is the sordid violation of a trust. It is a selfish casting aside of the law of God. And like other forms of dishonesty, its fruits are sorrow, bitterness, heartbroken companions, and betrayed children. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Dishonesty again. Television recently carried the story of a woman imprisoned for 27 years, she having been convicted on the testimony of witnesses who have now come forth to confess they had lied. I know that this is an extreme case, but are you, are you not acquainted with cases of reputations ruined, of hearts broken, of men almost destroyed by the lying tongues of those who have borne false witness. I am reading a book of history, a history of the Second World War. It is entitled Bodyguard of Lies taken from the words of Winston Churchill, who said, In wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. The book deals with the many deceptions practiced on each side of the conflict. While reading it, one is again led to the conclusion that war is the devil's own game and that among its most serious victims is truth. Unfortunately, the easy use of falsehood and deception goes on long after treaties of peace are signed. And some of those schooled in the art in times of war continue to ply their skills in days of peace. Then, like a disease that is endemic, the evil spreads and grows in virulence. When this nation was caught in an embarrassing situation, and the president failed to speak truthfully to the world, our credibility fell so tragically that we have never entirely recovered. What dismal actions we have witnessed in recent times in contrast with the behavior of those founding fathers who two centuries ago pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to establish this republic. 
The years that followed that declaration witnessed the impoverishment and the deaths of many of these ugly signers. But be it said to their eternal glory that not one ever tarnished his sacred honor. Thou shalt not covet. Is not covetousness that dishonest, cankering evil the root of most of the world's sorrows? For what a tawdry price men of avarice barter their lives. I recently read a book of fiction dealing with the officers of a great financial institution. With the death of the president, the senior vice president competed for his office. The story is an intriguing account of a man who was honorable and able, but who in his avarice to get ahead compromised principle until he was utterly destroyed and in the process almost took down to ruin the institution he sought to lead. The account is fiction, but the histories of business, of government, of institutions of many kind are replete with instances of covetous men who in their selfish, dishonest upward climb destroyed others and eventually destroyed themselves. Good men, well-intentioned men of great capacities, trade character for trinkets that turn to wax before their eyes and dreams that become only haunting nightmares. How rare a gem, how precious a jewel is the man or woman in whom there is neither guile nor deception nor falsehood. We have seen in recent weeks the tragedy of dishonesty as accounts of bribes have been carried on the front pages of the papers of the United States, Japan, and Europe. And as those revelations have cascaded forth, we have been reminded of the words of Benjamin Franklin. A small leak will sink a great ship. And also the words of Andrew Jackson, no free government can stand without virtue in the people. Wrote the author of Proverbs, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among his brethren. The appraisal spoken long ago by an English poet is true yet today. An honest man is the noblest work of God. Where there is honesty, other virtues will follow. The final article of faith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints affirms that we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in good, doing good to all men. We cannot be less than honest. We cannot be less than true. We cannot be less than virtuous if we are to keep sacred the trust given us. Once it was said among our people that a man's word was as good as his bond. Shall any of us be less reliable, less honest than our forebears? To those within the sound of my voice who are living this principle, I say the Lord bless you. Yours is the precious right to hold your heads in the sunlight of truth, unashamed before any man. 
If there be need for reformation, let it begin where we now stand. God will help us if we will seek that strength which comes from him. Sweet then will be our peace of mind. Blessed will be those with whom we live and associate. I leave you my testimony of the truth of the cause in which we labor, of the living reality of God our, of our Father, to whom someday each of us must make an accounting, and of our beloved Savior and Redeemer, the author of truth of whom we bear witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Out of curiosity, I went back in the records of the Church to look in, the, in on the April General Conference of 1876 to see what kind of attention the centennial of the nation would receive at that conference. Not much, not much was said, but I did come across what would have to be considered the most spectacular, unscheduled centennial event of the year. It seems that on April 5, 1876, just one day before the General Conference started, four powder magazines located on Arsenal Hill exploded. The hill was located one mile north and east of the Temple Block, and the explosion of an estimated 40 tons of powder scattered bits of stone and concrete all over the city and could be heard from miles around. It was reported that some thought the Day of Judgment had come. <laughs> and I suspect this had some impact on the number of people who attended the opening session of General Conference <laughs> the following day. The conference itself was very interesting. I think the theme, more than anything, was the payment of tithing, temple work, and sacrifice. You see, a hundred years ago, the Church was only 46 years old, and the Salt Lake Temple had not yet been constructed or had not yet been finished, and the St. George Temple was nearing completion, so the Brethren were urging the efforts of the Saints in this direction. President. Brigham Young, of course, was president of the Church, and uh, four members of the twelve who were in attendance at that conference were to be future presidents of the Church. Among the teachings that caught my eye at that April 1876 conference were these words from Wil Wilford Woodruff, and I quote, It may be asked, what are the commandments of the Lord? Many of them are contained in these records, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Doctrine and Covenants. We have the living oracles with us and have had from the commencement. The Lord will never leave his kingdom without a lawgiver, a leader, a president, to, a, to direct the affairs of his Church on the earth for the reason that this is the dispensation of the fullness of times in which God has set up a kingdom which is to be an everlasting kingdom and to whose, and to whose dominion there will be no end." Unquote. That caused me to reflect on the absolute importance of a living oracle, and also the words of Elder Orson F. Whitney of the Council of the Twelve, who said this, and I quote, The Latter-day Saints do not do things because they happen to be printed in a book. They do not do things because God told the Jews to do them, nor do they do or leave undone anything because of instructions that Christ gave to the Nephites. 
whatever is done by this church is because God, speaking from heaven in our day, has commanded this church to do it. No book presides over this church, and no books lie at its foundation. You cannot pile up books enough to take the place of God's priesthood, inspired by the power of the Holy Ghost." Elder Whitney was not taking away from the power and majesty of the scriptures. He was just putting them into perspective. He also said, No man ought to contend for what is in the books in the face of God's mouthpiece, who speaks for him and interprets his word. To contend is to defer to the dead letter in preference to the living oracles, which is always a false proposition." What is the Lord's oracle saying to us today? The general theme, of course, is lengthen our stride in a variety of areas. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity, Sister Dunn and I, to accompany President and Sister Kimball and President and Sister Tanner and some other of the general authorities and their wives to the area conferences in the South Pacific. May I share with you some of what I recorded President Kimball saying at these gatherings regarding missionary work. In Apia, Samoa, he promised that if the saints would hold family home evening and see that baptisms and ordinations to the priesthood and missions and temple marriages were carried out, the Lord would truly bless the people and that very few would be lost. In Hamilton, New Zealand, he said, Let us start a new effort to reach the sons of men all over the world. We are all called to our neighbors, and we should not go back to our Maker without having properly warned our neighbors. In Tonga, President Kimball asked that we pray to the Lord to open up the nations of the world so that we can teach the gospel everywhere. He said that he was of the belief that if we as a Church petitioned the Lord night and morning to change the hearts of men and open the nations of the world, that the Lord would intervene and open the way whereby we can teach the gospel to all nations. In Sydney, Australia, he told of his operation on his throat and how they left a portion of the vocal cords which allowed him to preach the gospel all over the world. But then he said, he wants to continue and work very hard at doing this, but he does not want to do it alone. He then invited the members of the Church to stand with him and preach the gospel just as the Lord has commanded us to do. Concerning missionary work, he said, Many young men who thought they didn't have to go or couldn't go are now finding that they can go if they plan and prepare, that indeed not only can they go, but they should go. In Brisbane, Australia, President Kimball said that as a Church we must go forward, month in and month out, until we have brought the gospel to everyone. In the Tahiti Area Conference, he urged us to do missionary work and to send our boys on missions. He said that we must be serious about the missionaries going out. I think we all recognize these messages, for he has repeated them from this pulpit many times. The only thing left to be done is to follow the prophet. President Kimball's visit to Australia was the second official visit of a president of the Church. The first was President David O. McKay in 1955. When President McKay was in Brisbane, Australia, the mission president took him 
one day to see the city. During the course of the day, they were looking across the Brisbane River into a new suburb which was known as Chermside. President McKay said to the mission president, Do we have any missionaries there? The mission president said, No. President McKay said, Send the missionaries in, for the people are ready. Missionaries were sent into the area, and they enjoyed tremendous success. Today, Chermside is part of the Brisbane Fourth Ward of the Brisbane Stake. These are the kinds of blessings that come when people not only listen to the living oracle, but do what he says. The blessings are found in doing the word and not just in hearing the word. The Church today is responding to President Kimball. He has asked every young man who is worthy and able to go into the mission field, and because of this, we now have more missionaries in the field than ever before in the history of this dispensation, and many more are still needed. Because he has asked every family in the Church to prayerfully friendship a non-member family and to otherwise help the missionary effort, there is a noticeable increase in the number of convert baptisms into the Church. But still, President Kimball says many more are needed and will accept if they are approached. Thank God for the scriptures which help us to grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to understand the nature of the Lord and the will of the Lord. But most of all, thank God for a living oracle, a legal administrator, so that we can know what the Lord wants us to do today. And so under his direction, we can have the legal right to act in the name of God so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be a living, viable influence built on current revelation. Oh, truly, we thank Thee, O God, for a prophet to lead us in these latter days. I bear you my witness that that prophet today is Spencer W. Kimball. I know that God our Father lives and that Jesus the Christ is His Son. I know this. I bear you that witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.